In the 19th century, moving images were everywhere. Illusionists cast tricks using mirrors and shadows, whilst flick books, magic lanterns and zoopraxoscopes unveiled the hidden mysteries of motion to a wide-eyed audience. By the later part of the century, new advancements in photography had made the dream of motion pictures reachable for a few genius inventors who toiled away in dingy workshops, setting fire to volatile chemicals as they cranked the handles of their machines, hoping to catch moments in time. Most now attribute the birth of cinema to either Thomas Edison, the famous American inventor, or the French Lumiere brothers, whose projection of a train pulling into a station terrified its excited audience. But there was another man who had been working on the problem of moving photographs and had seemingly cracked it several years earlier. On the dawn of his machine's great unveiling, however, he disappeared, leaving those behind to question, where in the world was Louis the Prince? This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 7, Episode 2 of Dark Histories. I am Ben, as always. Now this week's episode, I don't have a lot to say before we start. I do just want to give a quick shout out to Judith, who picked up a book for me from uh, my Amazon wishlist. uh, And it's really helped me out with this episode. It came literally right in the nick of time. You wouldn't believe how helpful it was getting it and being able to confirm a few details. So yeah, thank you very much for that. And without further ado, let's jump straight into it. This is Early Cinematography and the Disappearance of Louis Le Prince. By the late 19th century, photography had matured into a mass medium. Portrait studios charged punters 25 cents a throw to stand in front of a choice of painted backdrops and have their likenesses captured in stiff monochromatic poses. Those photographers without a permanent city studio toured the country with their equipment, setting up for a few days in rural towns, bringing as much excitement to the locals as the appearance of a travelling circus. Experimentation was still ongoing and improvements were still being found, but for the most part, the principles had been set in stone for some time and commercialisation was well underway. For most, it was enough to see life reproduced in the monochromatic still images produced by the boxy, polished hardwood cameras. The capturing of a moment, whilst no longer feared or viewed as some kind of black magic, was still undoubtedly a wonderful thing. Others, however, saw photography as a medium with limitations, and they branched out, striving for something that felt a little more real. Some painted their negatives, experimented with combining photographs into manufactured scenes, or set up elaborate lighting, pushing the medium into new artistic realms, whilst others dreamt of something that captured more than just a frozen moment. Illusionists cast projected images onto walls as slides were pulled across a glass lens, blurring the lines between multiple pictures to tell a story or convey a rough approximation of limited movement. In New York, entire gallery spaces were consumed by vast cylindrical landscapes that utilised a combination of paintings, projections and clever lighting that bounced across the surface. Crowds stood in the middle of the surrounding work and rotated themselves to unfold a narrative with great battles from the Civil War at particular highlight. For a handful of others, however, optical illusions and manipulation of light was little more than cheap tricks or whimsical toys. Whilst many enjoyed the entertainment, it was these few, the inventors and engineers, that looked further into the potential of the medium and dreamt of a time when one would not be limited to manipulating a single frame, 
are able to record an entire sequence of events to be played back at will. And it was these who would spend the better part of three decades perfecting their contraptions in order to invent a whole new medium and introduce the world to the motion picture. In 1860, Sir John Herschel, the English polymath who coined the term photography in its earlier stages of development, publicly theorised that one day it should be possible for the representation of scenes in action by photography. However, it would take at least another decade before his theories even began to be developed into any sort of reality. One of the earliest examples of a machine that could record movement in some description was developed by Etienne-Jules Marais, a French scientist who invented a peculiar instrument named the chronophotographic gun that appeared more like an early prototype of the Tommy gun rather than a camera. The contraption, with its long barrel and large film cylinder, was capable of taking 12 photographs in quick succession, which Marais used to study the movement of animals in motion, famously concluding in one study that cats always land on their feet. Edward Mybridge was an English photographer that would go on to develop the concept further by inventing a device known as the zoopraxoscope. This was quite a career change, as a few years before, he'd shot and killed his wife's lover, a move that was seen by a jury to have been justifiable homicide. The zoopraxoscope worked much like a flipbook, a common Victorian children's toy, and displayed several photographs along the edge of a disc that, when placed in front of a projector and rotated, gave the impression of looping, repetitive motions, such as a horse galloping or an athlete jumping. The development of the zoopraxoscope had been far more complicated than the device might at first seem, as first, Mybridge had to devise a way of capturing crisp photographs of his subjects, lowering the shutter speed of a series of cameras down to fractions of a second. He achieved this by activating the shutters with a tripwire and by using huge sheets of linen to create stark white backgrounds for his silhouetted subjects to move before, along with significant lighting. And even then, many of the frames would need to be touched up by hand after the fact. The results, however, were worth the effort and his projections were seen to unlock the mysteries of movement, the patterns of a horse's gait, the sway of the hips as a tennis racket swung through the air, and the leap of a stag as it galloped across the landscape, all of which, until now, had been hidden from the naked eye. Projection was largely seen as the next step forward, though it presented a host of problems that needed to be solved itself, primarily in producing a light source that was bright enough to cast a clear image onto a surface, whilst also being safe enough and to prevent catching fire to any images that were placed before a lens, most of which were incredibly fragile and imbued with volatile chemicals. Charles Emile Raynor had experimented with various techniques of projection in the development of his praxinoscope, a device similar in effect to Mybridge's zoopraxoscope, and a development of the zoetrope, the popular optical illusion presented by a cylinder with slits cut into it and a series of sequential images inside. The zoetrope was spun by hand as the user looked through the slits in order to trick the eye into seeing the images of the play as the playback of movement. Raynor's praxinoscope originally used mirrors to reflect the image to the user's eye, much in the same way the original zoetrope worked. However, he later patented and built several working projectors which cast the image onto walls. In Germany, Ottomar Anschutz worked on his electrotachyscope, a device similar to Mybridge's zoopraxoscope that he used to show short looping images of horses running for the Ministry of War by cranking round a huge one and a half metre cylinder lined with 24 glass plate photographs by hand. The images were projected through a glass lens onto a nearby wall by a glowing gas-filled tube, 
not entirely dissimilar to neon lighting to show smooth, clear one-second loops that improved upon Mybridge's silhouettes. These early inventions were all in some way or another inspirations and prototypes of the cameras and projectors that would be improved upon, shrunk down and commercialised by the Lumiere brothers from France and Thomas Edison in America, two giant names in 19th century history who are often credited with the invention of cinema. Whilst it is, in many respects, futile to pinpoint who was the first in a number of important fields, such was the dislocated yet almost collaborative nature of invention in the 19th century, it was the man who shot the irrefutable first successful movie who is so often forgotten and overshadowed by those that were commercially more successful and perhaps, more importantly, still around to market their devices. Just weeks before this first ever series of moving images was to be unveiled to a public gallery, the man who had devised the machines to shoot and project the images disappeared entirely, never to be seen or heard from again. The aim Augustin Le Prince was born in the historical city of Metz in France, 200 miles east of Paris. Ancient churches and castles sit dotted throughout its vast green spaces, along with the grand architecture that homed its population of over 50,000 citizens in the 19th century. Le Prince came from a background that befitted such idyllic, picturesque scenery and grew up on a country estate owned by his father, Louis-Abraham Ambois Le Prince, a veteran who had been a major in the French army. His mother, Elizabeth Marie Antoinette Boulebert, came from a wealthy family of architects and landlords who owned vineyards across France. Well-connected, the Le Prince family spent time surrounded by several affluent and influential people, including Louis Daguerre, the infamous French painter and photographer whose work on the daguerreotype photographic process bore his name. Young Louis Le Prince spent hours in Daguerre's workshop learning the basics of chemistry and photography, giving him an insight into an artistic world that would go on to influence the rest of his life. His father died when he was 13 years old and shortly after, Louis and his brother Albert were sent away to boarding school. Following his graduation, he attended university in Leipzig to study chemistry and optics and then art school in Paris to study painting and photography. Whilst in France, an old professor from university introduced him to Jack Whitley, the son of Joseph Whitley, who owned and ran a brass foundry in Leeds, England, that produced taps, pistons and various other components for, amongst other things, the booming railway industry. The pair became friends and recognising in Louis a keen work ethic as well as a useful ability to speak English, French and German, Jack invited Louis back to Leeds in 1866 to work at Whitley's as a European representative, with one eye to expand the business onto the continent. In the 1860s, Leeds was a sprawling industrial city in the north of England, full of noise and motion. The streets were filled with horses and carts shipping goods around the busy city that hummed with the constant din of the Industrial Revolution. Though its roots had been agricultural markets, Leeds had been largely consumed by factories and workshops, producing textiles that would be exported across the world. Mining and engineering made up a significant portion of the local economy, and Whitley's was one of many buildings that pumped smoke and fumes into the smoggy skyline that had been transformed from the beginning of the century. Rows of terraced houses had sprung up to house the influx of workers to the city that had grown exponentially over the previous decades some of whom would find their fortune, allowing them to move to the leafy outskirts of the city and build fine estates. Joseph Whitley had done exactly this, working from a position of poverty to a position of comfort, 
able to move into a large family estate known as Round Hay Cottages and send his two children, Jack and Elizabeth, abroad for school. Elizabeth was Louis's other motivation to move to England and work for Whitley's. He had met his friend's sister in France and the pair had fallen for one another instantly. Elizabeth was also an artist. Though she was more concerned with pottery and sculpture, the pair still found a mutual love for the arts and within three years of Louis working for Whitley's, they were married. Shortly after, Louis invested in Whitley's and became a partner of the firm and the couple settled down to start a new family. This domestic bliss was fractured quickly by war when, in 1870, Otto von Bismarck of the German Empire provoked the French into a declaration of war leading to the invasion of France by the German army. Alarmed, Louis returned to France to organise an escape for his mother, who he brought back to Leeds with him shortly after the breakout of hostilities. Whilst in France, he was arrested as a suspected Prussian spy, but despite this, he held no hostility towards the French Republic, and he quickly returned to France after seeing his mother home safely to England in order to enlist in the army. For several cold winter months, Louis served as part of a medic corps defending an encircled Paris as the Germans rained shells down on the city for weeks on end. Louis spent most days burying the dead, which numbered into the thousands, killed by artillery fire, starvation or sickness, as the city crept closer to its inevitable collapse. France's surrender came in January of 1871, and following the war, Louis returned to Leeds. He had survived the fighting, but at considerable cost. He had spent four months surrounded by suffering and death, and he had seen his own hometown be absorbed into the Prussian Empire. Louis needed a project, and as it turned out, he would soon find one. Following the war, Whitley suffered as much as many other surrounding businesses as the economy faltered, and Jack, having recently taken over the business from his father, struggled to right the ship. Two years later, the business was bankrupt, though Louis, seeing the writing on the wall, had left shortly before anyway in order to open a school of applied arts in the local Leeds Technical College with his wife, Elizabeth. Since his return from fighting in France, Louis and Elizabeth had managed to settle down and the couple had soon started their own family, and in the 1870s, Elizabeth gave birth to five children. Mariella in 1870, Adolphe in 1872, Amy in 1874, Joseph in 1875, and Fernand Leon in 1877. Elizabeth taught pottery, whilst Louis focused on fixing portrait photography onto enamel, creating decorative plates and mugs, which surprisingly gained him some renown, especially after he was commissioned to create a portrait of Queen Victoria. Louis joined the Freemasons, and both he and Elizabeth were active in the Leeds Philosophical and Literary Society. They had moved into a comfortable new home in the suburbs, and life was, for the most part, comfortable. It was around this time that Louis stumbled across what he would more or less consider to be his calling in life. After experimenting with collage photography in his workshop in a dingy little room to the rear of the art school, Louis had let an image slip in his hand, and for a moment he had seen the blurring of two images, creating an illusion of movement of the figure in the photograph. This was one among several moments that inspired Louis to meditate upon his future. One night in 1880, whilst alone with Elizabeth, he finally aired something that had been on his mind for some time. Moving photographs will be the next invention, he told her. Louis immediately recognised the importance of such an invention, far more than simple entertainment like the magic lanterns and other optical illusions that surrounded the average middle-class Victorian. Actual moving photographs, he concluded, would revolutionise the world.
One year later, in 1881, Louis's brother-in-law, Jack, had stumbled upon a new money-making scheme, and once more, he looked to Louis to help make things happen. He had invested in a linoleum wallpaper named Lincruster, a heavily embossed wall covering that could be manufactured to feature complicated designs and patterns popular within ornate Victorian interiors. Jack looked towards America, with its seemingly never-ending expansion and building boom, as a new opportunity for the fledgling company, and he asked Louis to join him on a coast-to-coast trip across the country, hoping to stir up a need for this new material. The trip didn't quite go as planned. With no US manufacturing sites set up and little in the way of American investment, Jack soon deemed the venture far too expensive to succeed, and he sold his share in the company. Far from failing, however, Lincruster went on to explode across the country in the most lavish of interiors without Jack or Louis' involvement. Whilst Jack was busy displaying this shocking lack of business acumen, Louis had been busy discovering an entirely new world. He had quickly fallen in love with America and decided almost immediately to stay on in New York, waving his brother-in-law off at the docks and writing home to his family, inviting them to come and join him in the new world. For Louis, it was a new beginning. He placed the failure of Whitley's behind him, along with the considerable debt that he had racked up in England, and decided to focus on a new future. The Le Prince family's early years in America were not the easiest. Louis started an interior design company, but it quickly failed, whilst Elizabeth painted and taught private art classes. Elizabeth began teaching art in a school for deaf and dumb children, and along with Louis, who helped out whilst also managing art projects within the city, the couple set up a successful art programme for the children, and Louis equipped a new workshop in the rear of the building. It was in this small workshop, come darkroom, that Louis would spend the next five years, oftentimes working past midnight, devising his machines that could realise all the wild ideas that he'd been rattling around in his head since he had spoken to Elizabeth about moving photographs. His earliest experiments were large, boxy, wooden cameras equipped with 16 lenses, each one taking a photograph a split second after the previous in order to create a series of images, much like Mybridge's earlier zoopraxoscope, shrunk down and placed within a single box. It may not quite have been a movie camera, but then one had to start somewhere, and Louis was enthused enough to quit his work managing art projects in order to focus on his inventions full-time. Financially speaking, this wasn't a simple move, and Louis wrote to his father-in-law back home in Leeds to ask for a loan in order to fund his experiments. Joseph Whitley was a keen businessman, and he found Louis's plans exciting. However, he was also a shrewd Yorkshireman, and as such, he wrote back to Louis, saying that he would invest once Louis had secured the necessary patents to protect his work. Securing the patents, and in turn more funding for the project, therefore became paramount for Louis, who had already dropped close to $3,000 of his own money into the project, and was in danger of running the family into poverty at an alarming rate. In November of 1886, he applied to the US Patents Office with the paperwork for both a camera and a projector, or a receiver and a deliverer, in Louis' terms. And in a flourish, he even sketched out a gallery that could be set up to display the pictures that was remarkably similar to a modern-day cinema. Unfortunately, the patents were rejected, beginning a long road of applications and rejections that would last another two years. To the patent office, Louis' machines were too close to patents that already existed, but in reality, it was simply the limitations of the patent office's employees' understanding of Louis' camera and what it was actually doing. It was not simply a new device for taking photographs, 
but a device for an entirely new medium. Louis began considering his options and even thought of visiting Thomas Edison, the famous American inventor, with the hopes of partnering with his company in order to secure proper funding. But he eventually curbed the idea after being warned away by a friend on the grounds that Edison was not altogether trustworthy. By the late 1880s, Thomas Edison was a larger-than-life character, the genius inventor who had brought electricity to the world. From his laboratory in Menmo Park in New Jersey, Edison watched over a fleet of young inventors who he charged with undertaking the research for any new invention that he deemed commercially viable. Successful inventions would be brought to Edison to perfect and unveil to the world. Edison had also managed to garner something of a reputation for strict litigation in order to protect his patents, no matter how realistic they had actually been. And it was for this reason that Louis was warned against speaking with the great inventor. Unbeknown to Louis, Edison had in fact already shown some interest in producing an invention for moving images, though he had soon palmed the project off upon one of his assistants, William Kennedy Laurie Dixon. Either way, the matter of partnership with Edison became moot after Louis received an offer to return to Leeds in order to work for Joseph Whitley once more, this time with an offer of all of Whitley's industrial resources at his disposal, as well as financial backing from his father-in-law. Louis jumped at the chance. Earlier that year, Louis's brother Albert had suffered a string of difficult life events, including the death of his wife, leaving him penniless with three children, and the brother's elderly mother had also recently fallen ill. As such, he thought it might be better to be a little closer to France, at least for the time being, and rather curiously, he also told Elizabeth that he had heard of queer things and that he might be safer away. In the spring of 1887, Louis waved goodbye to his family and he sailed for France in order to stay with his mother, who he watched over and cared for until her death at the end of May. The family's house had been left to Louis and Albert and Louis sold his share to his brother with the promise of payment at a later date, before heading back to Leeds to start his work at Whitley's once more. Back in Leeds, he kitted out a large workshop and set to work on his camera. With the help of his two assistants and the connections of the Whitley firm, he engineered precision gears and cranks and began using a new type of film which consisted of long strips of paper dipped in a silver salt-based chemical gel that wrapped around two drums that Louis could use to wind the film strips across the machine's lens. The paper film had been invented by an American named George Eastman in 1885. Eastman had designed the film for his photography camera that he hoped would be sold to the mainstream market. Around the time Louis was in Leeds, Eastman patented his own invention and named it the Kodak Camera. By now, Louis had discarded his multi-lens machine in favour of a single lens in order to remove the judder inherent in footage shot from multiple lenses with multiple perspectives. Still, the work was not easy, and for every breakthrough, new setbacks reared their ugly heads, as machinery jammed and chemicals burst into flames. By the winter of 1887, though, he had built a new camera with a single lens and a single viewfinder, attached to a large hardwood box with brass accents weighing 40 pounds. The whole thing stood atop four sturdy wooden legs, that were perched on a set of wide steel wheels. That winter, he was also finally able to secure patents, not only in America, but in Britain and France too. He also began a series of test shoots, and on Sunday, October the 14th of 1888, he rounded up his son, Adolf, his father-in-law, Joseph Whitley, his mother-in-law, Sarah Whitley, and Sarah's friend, Annie Hartley, on the lawn of the Roundhay Cottages 
in order to shoot a test film. Lasting just under two seconds, Louis shot the world's first example of moving pictures by cranking the handle on the side of his camera, dragging the paper film across the lens at around 12 frames per second. On the left of the scene, the cottage's large bay windows tower above four figures on the lawn that walk in circles around one another. When the footage was played back through the dim light of Louis's early projector prototype, he gazed in awe at his invention and knew immediately that it had been right all along. Moving pictures really would be revolutionary. But Louis Le Prince was not the only one making headway on his invention. By sheer coincidence, Etienne Jules Marais, a French photographer, shot his own film at the Académie de Sciences the day after Louis had shot the Roundhay Garden scene, although he was still unable to successfully project the film for playback. Edison too had been working hard, or at least his assistant, Dixon, had been, and he had filed a pre-patent for a machine he called the Kinetoscope, a large box with a lens for a viewfinder in the lid that ran a film across a pair of rollers in order to play a movie to a single viewer. It was all theoretical at the time Edison had filed for the pre-patent, but it was nevertheless progress. A few weeks after Louis shot his Roundhay garden scene, John Carbert announced his own invention. In principle, it was much like the paper film that Louis had been using, and it was made out of celluloid. It was a leap forward for photographers everywhere, as the celluloid was so much more robust and far less volatile than the glass or paper that had been in use previously. For Louis, celluloid held a huge amount of promise. He immediately got to work on adjusting his machine to fit the new material film and went about slicing up thin strips of the celluloid to place them into his own drums. He then went to work on his projector, which had its own troubles. This was partially solved by the added translucency of the celluloid, creating a projection light bright enough to cast his moving images onto the wall was still, however, proving difficult, especially if one wanted to avoid a fire. Within a year, this was helped along once more when George Eastman of the Kodak brand improved again on the celluloid film by making it much thinner and more flexible. For Louis, it was the missing piece of the puzzle, and he wrote to Elizabeth to tell her the good news. This is absolutely my last trial, he scratched out on the paper, and I trust it will answer perfectly. It was about time too. Louis had been writing to Elizabeth weekly and had been showing clear signs of loneliness, separated from his family for so long. What was more, his old debtors had realised that he was back in England and had been writing to him to let him know, and they had even issued him a court summons, which Louis promptly ignored. Excitedly, he wrote to Elizabeth, asking her to arrange a venue within which he could show his new moving picture camera to the world and prepared his return to America. The spring of 1890 rolled around, and back in New York, Elizabeth had rented a large property in Harlem Heights named the Jamel Mansion, a large, square, federal-style house shielded by a large iron gate. It had been used by the army during the American Revolution, though by 1890 it had fallen into a state of disrepair. The Le Prince family, that had been left stateside, set about restoring the old building, preparing it for Louis's grand return. In Leeds, Louis ordered specially crafted travel cases for his inventions and booked tickets aboard a steamer from Liverpool to New York for himself and his father-in-law. Before returning to America, however, he had planned to visit his brother in France in order to say goodbye and wrap up the particulars for the money owed to him for his half of the family home. He travelled to France with Richard Wilson, a long-term family friend and banker, and Mr Wilson's wife. 
the pair had planned to go sightseeing, and so the trio travelled together to Bourges before Louis headed to Dijon via rail on the 12th of September in order to stay with his brother for a few days. He planned to catch the train back to Paris that Friday, where he'd meet up once more with the Wilsons so that they could all travel back to Leeds together. Louis would then travel back to America with his father-in-law. It was a carefully worked out venture, but it of course did not go exactly as planned. On Friday the 16th of September, Richard Wilson and his wife waited in Paris for Louis to arrive from Dijon, but when the train arrived and Louis didn't show up, they wound up travelling back to England alone, reasoning that it was more than likely that Louis had been held up in Dijon and they were sure they would see him back in Leeds in a few days. Meanwhile, in New York, Elizabeth waited patiently for Louis to arrive with her father. It was strange, she thought, that Louis had not written recently. He was sure to be busy overseeing the packing up of his workshop in Leeds and so she didn't immediately worry about her husband's new silence. At least that was until Joseph Whitley arrived in New York alone. He too hadn't seen Louis since he had headed out to France and so he had had to catch the boat by himself. It soon dawned upon everyone that no one had actually seen nor heard from Louis since he had boarded the train in Dijon. Richard Wilson was contacted and he forced his way into the Leeds workshop but what he saw inside was not terribly reassuring. Louis's cameras remained packed up and ready to leave for America, but the whole place looked deserted, and it looked very much like Louis had not been back there since he had left for France. By now it had been seven weeks since Louis had planned to return from France, and Elizabeth was naturally concerned for her husband. She contacted other family members and asked if they had seen or spoken to Louis, but it was all to no avail. Jack Whitley contacted Scotland Yard in order to open a missing persons report and Elizabeth contacted Albert in Dijon to confirm that Louis really had boarded his train to Paris on the 16th like he had planned. Albert confirmed that he had and that he had seen him off at the station himself and then he told Elizabeth to stay in New York and check the arrivals at the docks to ensure that if Louis did return to New York she would not miss him. For his part, he told her that he had already placed missing person adverts in all the newspapers and been in contact with Detective Dugan of the Family Tracing Office. In New York, Elizabeth contacted the police, but was left disappointed after the detective advised her to file a charge of desertion on Louis. When she rejected this idea, he did allow her to flip through the photos of foreign persons found dead abroad, but for better or worse, she found nothing. Time passed slowly, and the trail remained cold. Files were opened in Scotland Yard and in Paris, but no incidents had been reported on the train and no bodies carted off the tracks. Inquiries to all the morgues and asylums across the country had either fallen flat or been returned with replies in the negative. Louis Le Prince had, for all intents and purposes, disappeared into thin air. The workshop in Leeds was torn through with most of Louis's possessions sold off in order to help pay his debts, with a few select pieces of equipment kept to be sent to Elizabeth in New York. And then things fell painfully silent. On the 28th of May, 1891, nine months after Louis had disappeared from a train in Dijon, the New York Sun ran a headline that ignited the public excitement. Edison had done it again, this time with the kinetograph. Edison's latest and most exciting device. Someone said the wizard talked too much, and now he has justified his talk. The scenes, characters, movements and voices of an act of the opera may be reproduced in one's own parlour by this marvellous machine, 
which takes continuous photographs at a rate of 46 a second as the phonograph records sound waves and throws the moving pictures on a screen while the phonograph repeats the songs and dialogue. The piece explained how the electric wizard had almost perfected his camera and foretold of a time when one could sit and watch a boxing match in his own home, complete with the commentary of the spectators. To most of New York, it sounded like magic, but to Elizabeth, it sounded like thievery. Casting her mind back, she recalled two events that now seemed to take on a more sinister light. One day, as she was returning to New York from New Jersey, she had taken a ferry and by sheer coincidence seen Edison on the same boat, talking with a man that she recognised to have been Louis' patent advisor. Furthermore, she recalled a letter from her friend over in England who had written to tell her that he had recently been approached by someone claiming to have been a representative of Thomas Edison who had been inquiring about Louis' work in Leeds. Saddened and confused by her husband's disappearance, Elizabeth began theorising that Edison, a man known to have stolen credit for his inventions in the past, was also the orchestrator of a grand conspiracy against Louis, acted out in order to steal his invention. She visited a lawyer, but was let down abruptly when she was told that since no body had actually been found, Louis was officially still alive, until such time as a body was found, or seven years had passed. As such, Elizabeth had no way to claim the estate in order to represent Louis' interests in court regarding any patents for his intellectual property. In short, she would have to sit tight, powerless, for seven years and watch as Edison took all the credit and financial rewards for an invention that she believed to have been stolen from her missing husband. The years passed slowly. Still, Louis had not made his return, and Elizabeth watched on as Edison's kinetoscope parlours opened across New York to crowds of excited punters. Meanwhile, in Europe, the Lumiere brothers had been busy showing off their own camera in the gallery basement of a Paris cafe, improving upon Edison's kinetoscope by projecting the images onto a wall for all to see. Desperate, Elizabeth travelled to France in hopes of turning over some overlooked clue in the search for Louis, but only found the trail ice cold. Detective Dugan had long since retired. In fact, it seemed like the only Detective Dugan anyone could find on record had been working for the police decades before Louis' disappearance and could no longer be traced. Elizabeth wound up heading back to America, completely dejected. Even after Louis' patents did transfer to her ownership seven years after his disappearance, she was too poor to fight Edison in court anyway. And then, in 1898, just a few months after the transfer of the patents had been finalised, the Le Prince family found themselves in court, face to face with Edison, for an entirely different reason. Whilst Elizabeth had been desperately trying to track down her missing husband, Edison had been busy litigating against anyone and everyone who had been using celluloid film in their motion picture companies in an attempt to create a monopoly for himself. The problem for Edison was that several of his earliest patents had been denied due to the fact that they had actually infringed upon other inventors' rights. Namely, they infringed upon Louis Le Prince's patents. In a legal wrangle with the creators of the Mutoscope, a kinetoscope-like machine invented by none other than Edison's assistant, William Dixon, the Le Princes were called to court in order to prove for Mutoscope that none of Edison's rights had been infringed by Mutoscope because if Louis Le Prince held the patents, then Edison did not have the rights in the first place. Adolphe Le Prince travelled to Leeds to collect testimony from those involved with his father's experiments and to gather as much physical evidence of the cameras as he could lay his hands on. It was for himself and his mother 
their best chance to prove that Louis Le Prince had been the original inventor of the motion picture camera. In court, however, things did not go quite to plan, and the case quickly fell apart, as Adolphe tried to put forward his father's case, and both Mutoscope and Edison turned upon him. The court eventually ruled in favour of Edison, and shortly after, Adolphe went out walking with a shotgun, which he turned on himself, shooting himself in the head. It had been tragically premature on the part of Adolphe, as six months later, the judge's decision was reversed when it was proven that Edison had been abusing the patent system. It didn't stop the electric wizard, however, and by the mid-1890s, his kinetoscope parlours had saturated cities across the country and proven a roaring commercial success. Edison bought the rights to a projector and unveiled it as his own invention at what would become the American Film Exhibition, successfully kick-starting the cinema industry in the United States. Just as Louis Le Prince had imagined over a decade earlier, film had truly become revolutionary. But where in the world had he disappeared to? And why had he not been the one to unveil it? Despite all of his hard work, he had disappeared on the eve of his great moment, never to be seen or heard from again. There are several theories as to what happened to Louis Le Prince back in Dijon in 1890, ranging from cutthroat conspiracy to unfortunate accidents. One of the most often repeated theories is that of suicide and suggests that Louis, deeply in debt, decided to take his own life in order to remove the burden from his family. This theory is backed mainly by the fact that his own grandson put forth the theory himself, giving it a false degree of authenticity considering that he didn't actually offer any solid evidence. It is certainly true that Louis had a debt of around $600 and that he'd received a court summons concerning the debt. He had also made a couple of small payments of around $7 in the months leading to his disappearance. But this theory seems to ignore the fact that Louis was also on the cusp of unveiling his camera, presumably securing his financial future several times over. Indeed, Louis had such faith that the camera would be so utterly groundbreaking that he was willing to sacrifice short-term comforts for him and his family for the promise of a spectacularly wealthy future once the camera was complete. It also does not explain why there were no bodies found anywhere on the railway tracks between Dijon and Paris. Another theory that bears some similarities is that Louis disappeared in order to start a new life in Chicago as a gay man where he died in 1898. Several journalists have cited this theory over the years, but none have ever offered up any evidence whatsoever. And just like the suicide theory before, it seems to ignore the fact that everything Louis had been working for for almost two decades was about to come to fruition. So why would he have chosen that moment to disappear and not leave it until after he could have secured a better financial future for both himself and his children? Of course, one of the most tantalising theories lies in a shroud of deep conspiracy. There are many who believe that Thomas Edison, known as he was for fierce litigation in attempts to financially ruin his competitors and less than strict morals when it came to claiming credit, had had Louis assassinated in order to steal his plans for the camera so that he could develop it and claim the rewards for himself. Sensational in the extreme, it is nevertheless the theory that much of the Le Prince family believed at the time and what many of his ancestors continue to believe. Elizabeth even believed that Edison was involved in Adolf's shotgun death as well. Another theory suggests that Edison did not have Louis killed, only kidnapped. But just like many other theories... Neither concerning Edison has a single shred of evidence to suggest that they may have been true. 
Piggybacking from the earlier suicide theories, there is one train of thought that suggests that Louis simply ran away because his camera was not quite as near to completion as he had made it out to be. Louis knew that it was not quite up to snuff, that he was already in debt, and that he had no funding to finalise the invention. This theory suggests that he had visited Dijon in order to collect on the payment that his brother owed him on the Paris house left to them by their mother, and when Albert was unable to pay him the money he owed, Louis felt that after all of his work and everything that he had put his family through in the years he had pulled away on the machine, there was no future for his camera and decided to disappear himself in order to conceal the shame of admitting such to his family. This theory, however, doesn't really explain why some of his cameras were found and they appeared to work just as he said they would. There is one final theory that ties into Albert Le Prince, and it was put forward by Paul Fisher in his book The Man Who Invented Motion Pictures. This theory manages to turn the entire story on its head. Fisher suggests that Louis never actually got on the train in Dijon at all. His brother, Albert, was the only person who claimed to have seen Louis leave, and it was also Albert who claimed to have opened a case with the French police, as well as Albert who said that he placed the adverts in all the newspapers. Problems arise when the story is looked into a little deeper, however, because there is no evidence that any adverts were ever printed. And when Elizabeth did visit France, Detective Dugan, who Albert had said he had spoken to concerning the case, appeared to have not actually existed, at least not in the correct time period. Furthermore, it was Albert who insisted that Elizabeth stay put in New York and not come to France after Louis' disappearance. So was it actually Albert who killed his own brother and then invented a story that he had tried hard to track him down? If Louis had gone to Dijon in order to finalise the payment owed to him by Albert for their Paris house and Albert had realised that he had no means of paying him, did he kill Louis in order to remove him from the deal and take complete ownership of the house? This is no less far-fetched a theory than anything else proposed, but like everything else, it also has little to no evidence to support it. In fact, when looking at all the family's letters, as well as Elizabeth's memoirs, it seems that the Prince family were very close and that there had never actually been any animosity between the two brothers throughout all of their lives. One thing's for certain, and that is that it seems highly unlikely that we will ever know the truth to Louis Le Prince's disappearance. In 2003, a new photograph did appear of a man who turned up drowned in a French river and whose body lay unclaimed in a morgue until its eventual burial. The photo didn't really match Louis on several points, however, and it seems much more was made of the picture simply because it was an unidentified body that fit roughly into the correct time period, rather than it actually bearing any resemblance to Louis at all. Whatever the inventor's fate, he did eventually gain recognition for his work in the invention of cinema, especially in Leeds, when in 1930, Louis's daughter Marie visited the city to unveil a memorial to her father at the site of his old workshop. The round hay garden scene, along with a second short piece of footage featuring traffic crossing a bridge in Leeds, are now accepted to be the earliest examples of film ever taken, and Louis's place within history of cinematography is much more widely known. He may never have lived to receive the credit he deserved, and his disappearance may never be solved, but his place in history is at least confirmed. So that was the story of Louis Le Prince. And we'll be back to talk a little bit about it and some of my theories after these short advert breaks. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. When you're at your best, you can do great things. 
But sometimes life gets you bogged down and you might feel overwhelmed or just like you're not showing up in the way that you want to. I can attest to that entirely with this podcast. You know, I, I explained to a lot of people before that I started making this podcast because I had anxiety and it, and the podcast helped me to cope with that. But at the same time, the anxiety can get in the way of the show often. Um, and, it, and it just, you know, I, God, I know for sure how difficult it can make life be. And this is where better help comes in because uh, working with a therapist can just help you get closer to the, the best version of you. Now, I've personally been using BetterHelp just recently. Uh, I, I, I started using it literally because uh, they were going to sponsor the show. So I, I wanted to try it out and, and see what it how it works before I started speaking to you guys about it. And I've personally found it a, a really big benefit just to have someone uh, to talk to every, every Monday morning um, and just help me uh, get some sort of positive coping skills for some of the social anxiety that, that, that holds me back at times. Uh, you know, you don't always have to wait for a major trauma or, or great catastrophe in your life to go and see a therapist. Like I say, I feel like I've benefited with the social anxiety side of things just just from having someone to talk to who's, you know, there and, and, and willing to listen and let me see things from maybe a different perspective. So if you are thinking uh, or if you've ever thought of giving therapy a try, you know, better help is, is convenient, it's flexible, it's affordable, and it's entirely online. You just fill out a, a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist. Um, it took me about, I think, just under two days to be matched after I filled out my questionnaire. Um, and you can switch therapists if you find that the one you're matched with doesn't really suit you. The one that I've been working with so far has been lovely and I've had no reason to change but you can change whenever you like yeah so i think it's a a great option if you want to feel more empowered in life or or you just find that small things are maybe like getting in the way of just being who you want to be then uh you know maybe try therapy and maybe it can get you there so if you do think you are interested uh visit betterhelp.com slash dark histories today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp h-e-l-p dot com slash dark histories and that link will also be in the show notes if you want to check it out there cheers forbidden history grisly ghosts monstrous cryptids and harrowing folklore dominate japan's history and culture mysterious japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories urban legends and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format many of these tales have never been presented in english before Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Having. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Welcome back. So Louis Le Prince, it's an interesting story and it's you know, fascinating on a lot of levels. Uh, the cinematography history behind it is really interesting. But obviously, Louis' disappearance is like the key uh, to the, you know, they're the, the most interesting point here. Now, for me, most of the theories are a little bit um, sensational over the top. I, I don't really believe in the Edison conspiracies. Uh, I do think that when you look into Thomas Edison, he 
didn't seem like the nicest of men. But he also just seemed like a, a bit of a hard-nosed businessman rather than a, a killer. I don't, I don't, I just don't, I think it's all a bit far-fetched. And I think that that was probably uh, a product of Elizabeth's desperation rather than any actual sort of likely event. Um, but for me, the Paul Fisher theory of it being Albert, that struck home for me. Um, and I thought it was quite interesting because, so I didn't actually read that theory until quite near the end of this episode like after i'd almost finished doing all my research and 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 i'd written quite a large part of this episode and before i'd read this theory i had actually spent about two days searching uh the archive like uh, newspaper archives for albert's um adverts for louis for you know that he said that he put into the newspapers for missing people and i hadn't found them and I ended up having to give up and just accept that, okay, I was not going to be able to find them for this episode because, you know, I can't, you know, I've got to move on after a certain amount of time. And and it, it, plus it didn't seem like super important. I just would like to have seen them for the episode. So I, I gave a couple of days to try and find them and I, I, I couldn't find them. Now that's quite unusual because after all these years of dark histories, I, I think that if you give me something to find in a newspaper archive, I can probably find that pretty quick. Like I've learned the sort of tricks now and, and the, the sort of patterns that you need to follow to sort of like quickly find things. Um, you know, I know which newspapers are likely to be reprinting which newspapers and, 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 and which page you need to look on for certain things and stuff like that. You know, just little things that make it much easier so that I don't need to rely on search engines. You know, I can I can I can thumb through them and and find what I need to find generally. And I couldn't find these these adverts. And to me, that was that was weird. Um, but you know, I accepted that, okay, I just can't find them and, and I haven't got the time. I've got to move on. But then when I read this theory, it suddenly just clicked into place for me. Like that's why I can't find them. And so I sort of, from that moment on, I, I I sort of subscribe to that, that theory. I do think it's quite compelling. Like I say, the, the advert thing got me, but also I found it interesting that, um, he didn't want Elizabeth to come to France. And he basically said, you stay there, look out for Louis, just in case he shows up. I'll, I'll crack on, like, over here. Don't worry about it. I thought that was weird that he was really putting her off, like, quite strongly. And I also thought it was weird uh, when I found out that the that the, um, the detective, he, it didn't seem to really exist at the time frame that he said it did. Uh, you know, he basically, he he worked for the police years and years before any of this stuff happened. But I kind of thought, okay, you know, this is just sometimes the sorts of things that happen in these old cases and let's just move on for now and and keep researching and see what we can find and stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I, I have to say, like, when, when I read that theory, it did all fall into place for me. If that's not the answer, I think it's the closest thing we have to a theory with a true motive because, you know, his brother definitely had a motive. So when his wife died... So basically, um, when when Albert had married, he he married into a quite a rich family, and so he had like a, a sort of sort of prenuptial contract type thing written up with between him and his wife, so that um, if they ever separated that or anything happened to the to the marriage, they would uh, he would basically walk away with nothing, right? Um, and when she died, obviously that really screwed him over because he now had three children. And no real way of supporting them. He, he was basically like completely asset stripped by her family. 
And so when Louis and Albert's mother died um, and left the Paris house to them, Louis basically said, okay, you can have the house, uh, you know, just give me half the money and, and we'll call it quits. And for Albert, that was like a really important asset because he'd say he'd just more or less been asset stripped. So, you know, he, he, I can see him jumping at that and because he needed it without sort of considering that actually he then owed Louis a considerable sum for the house. I think it was somewhere in the region of $65,000 or the equivalent of $65,000 he owed him. And and he sort of planned to pay him uh, over a a period of about five years or he was going to pay him after a period of five years, I think. And so when Louis shows up and says, oh, by the way, I I probably need this money because that's probably why Louis went to France in the first place. Like Louis went to France, essentially he was close to being bankrupt. There are some people that say that his business in Leeds was sort of uh, financially okay. And and that is true, but it's also true that he was heavily in debt and he had this quite large debt to pay. And so I can see him going to see uh, Albert in France in order to try and get at least some of that money that was owed to him for the house so that he could pay his debt. Uh, before he left for America because I, I think that maybe he was aware that he was about to unveil his camera and he didn't want this debt sort of hanging off his shoulders so he wanted to wrap it up and there is also evidence that says that once he was in Dijon it wasn't necessarily like the fun three days spent with the family that you kind of think it should be for a man that was leaving to America and was going to see his brother for one last time to say you know goodbye Shows turns out that actually he didn't spend that much time with his brother and uh, it seems like his brother didn't really want to spend much time with him, which is quite interesting. So all this stuff sort of leads you to a motive that actually maybe his brother didn't have that money and maybe his brother sort of panicked and bumped him off. Seems quite extreme, but it's the only theory really that has a, a motive and everything else does fit quite comfortably. Why else would he have lied about placing the adverts in the newspaper you know i can't see why you would really lie about that um but at the same time it still does seem like quite an extreme theory i appreciate that um i don't think that there is sort of some talk about a, a photograph that was found in 2003 that i sort of roughly mentioned in the episode to talk a little bit about that i i think it's kind of it doesn't it's it's for me it's not anything like Le prince i didn't really give it much time in the episode because it's I don't think it's worth much time. Like basically, like Louis was really tall. He was like six foot something, which is quite unusual for the time. And this picture is of a man not that tall for a start. Um, and uh, he was found wearing clothes that had monograms that weren't Louis Le Prince's um, initials at all. And so I just, and it didn't even really look like him. I mean, his face was a bit beaten up and he had been chucked in the river and stuff. But it didn't really look like him. And also his body was found a few weeks after Louis had disappeared. So there must have been a period there of like two or three weeks where Louis was alive and not dead, but kidnapped somewhere in France. So I don't really um, think that that picture is really worth much thought, to be honest. Um, you know, I think, I, I like I mentioned in the episode, I think probably that was more because it's a picture of an unidentified man that sort of fit the right time and he had mutton chops like but you know like most Victorian men or you know a lot of Victorian men have mutton chops so it you know it's not enough for me and there's sort of too much that goes against it uh really so that's sort of that picture um 
the other, I guess, uh, theories were the suicide ones. And for me, I don't see the point in that. He'd worked all those years to, um, you know, unveil his camera. I, I don't think, I can't, I just don't understand why he would have committed suicide at that point in time. It just doesn't make any sense. It's everything that he'd been working for. Um, I don't, I just don't, even if he was sort of on the verge of bankruptcy or, or whatever, I just, I just don't think he would have done it before he'd unveiled the camera. I think he would have wanted that moment and at least it would have secured, if you know, he did have problems and maybe he did want to commit suicide, at least he could have secured his family's future and I think he would have wanted to do that. So I don't really believe in the, the, the suicide option. The one that does sort of intrigue me a little is the idea that his cameras were perhaps not quite what he'd made them out to be. And he, he sort of realised that without any money from his brother, he couldn't... Well, he'd run out of money and time, basically. And, and he'd sort of wasn't... You know, maybe it was like this last-minute doubts as to how good they really were or something like that. There, there were talk that he was quite... A, perfectionist and he and and maybe he wasn't quite happy with it and and so he let that get the better of him and just couldn't deal with the shame of sort of admitting that actually his cameras and everything he'd worked for for all this time just wasn't good enough that's sort of compelling sort of but 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 the the truth is that you know he had done like practice films and and they were fine so yeah, I, I'm not sure I can really go with it, but it, but that one I feel like is second sort of in the running for me, along with, um, say, first being Albert as a murderer, which I think is quite extreme of a theory. And normally for me, you know, I tend to sit on the fence quite a bit, but in this case, I feel like I'm going all in on it being Albert as a as the killer. Which, yeah, is, is I guess that's my theory. If you agree or disagree with me, you can get in touch. Uh, my email is contact at darkhistories.com. And that's about it. If you'd like to get in contact, say that's the email. Uh, or you can check in the show notes and you'll find all of the social media ways that you can DM me. You can also get in touch with me on Discord. And you can also go to the website, uh, which is darkhistories.com. And there you'll be able to find all the ways that you can get in touch as well as the uh, the email address and all the ways that you can support the show if you would like to, along with like things like merch and the links for the books and like ways to get onto the Discord and basically everything. Like that's the, the kind of the hub for Dark History. So anything you need to know, darkhistories.com is the place you want to be. Otherwise, that's about it. So I'll leave it there. Thank you very much for listening as always. I will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. So until then, take care, sleep tight. <laughs>